Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that, too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome back, everyone. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And with me for our Soulbox Roundtable are my two fabulous co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Hello, John. And Hi C. Lutmers. Good morning. And I would love to share with my co-hosts, this is a bit of a, a challenging topic, perhaps, uh, and it has to do with, the, with ethics and morality and uh, how we actually come to some conclusion about about what is ethical and moral. And I've been playing with this a little bit because I've been talking with another colleague of mine, Lincoln Cannon, who's written about the ethics of desire and, and ethics in general. And it does challenge me a bit. Um, I, I'll, I'll share with you a, a clip from a blog post. Um, Someone has been doing some research on the difference between moralism and amoralism. And it, it turns out that there isn't as much of a difference as it might, we might think. Uh, the quote is, it seems to me that what could broadly be called desire has been the moving force of humanity, no matter how we might window dress it with moral talk. By desire, I don't mean sexual craving or even selfish wanting. I use the term generally to refer to whatever motivates us which ranges from selfishness to altruism. The sort of desire that now concerns me most is what we would want if we were absolutely convinced that there's no such thing as moral right and wrong. And so with that in mind, moral right and wrong, is that an obsolete concept? That's, I'd like to start with that. Is, is, is the idea of a moral right and wrong obsolete. John, for me, I loved what you just read, by the way. That was that was a great passage. For me, I don't even think about what's morally right or wrong. My mind doesn't go there. My heart doesn't go there. I tend to 
pay attention to my internal compass to guide me. So no. in that context. So so does that doesn't that does it worry you that you don't have a quote unquote moral compass outside of yourself or that absolutely that, not it's a great uh, comfort and and the idea that the rest of the world might also be moving in the direction of not having an external moral compass well i can only speak for myself john and mm-hmm. i know that having my own moral compass which has never steered me wrong is a great sense of comfort and freedom and if everybody who was able to pay attention to their heart and their spirit and fine-tune their moral compass, I don't even know if we would need morality. It would be innate. So this historical notions of um, looking to scripture, for example, uh, to identify or looking to um, an authority to identify a a right doing or a wrong doing script or value system. Well, for for me, I find that every other person that has ever lived can be a source of inspiration for me. Mm-hmm. But I still go back to my internal compass, which I treasure, nourish, and cultivate, which is connected directly to my heart and my spirit. So for me, that's the ultimate authority. So. Perhaps it is outdated. Perhaps. I see. What do you? What's your take on this? Well, if I, in response to the question you posed, I would say that we're starting to see that morality is ob- becoming obsolete in the sense of it being dictated by one particular institution, um, or, or that everyone has to conform to the same, even if that doesn't make sense for where the people uh, are. Um, So I think that, you know, morality based on dogma and ideology or this kind of institutionalized entrenchment of what is right and wrong that is handed down from one person or a small group of people is moving towards being obsolete because it just it doesn't scale and it doesn't really work in modern society where you have many different people who are living and expressing themselves in their own individual unique ways in life and in the world and you know we can't say that it is wrong for them to do that my, my criteria is always it's not wrong for them to do that as long as it's not um, harming another and it's not doing something that involves another that doesn't have consent. So to be told that something is right or wrong from on high, whatever on high would mean to someone, I think is becoming more and more obsolete um, because we see that that is filled with bias and personal prejudice and also personal agendas for power, control, etc. And that's the kind of morality that I think is being seen for what it is more and moving more towards obsolescence. Mm. Well, okay, so the the terrain gets a little less firm 
when we think about things from the perspective of cultural cultural uniqueness, you know, even something as simple as uh, eating meat, right? Whether you're whether you uh, want to be a vegetarian or or whether you want to be a carnivore, and the the idea that there, you know, one person's diet is another person's cruelty, right? And so, how do we what what do, is what do we do about that? That that you know, the, I see in your case, you said as long as it's not affecting someone else, but really everything we do affects someone else. Well, yes, but there's direct and indirect. So in the example you just gave, you know, I, I'm a vegetarian um, and don't eat any meat, and so, but I'm not going to impose that on someone else. That is up to them to make their own choice about that. But my choice is I feel it is wrong for me to eat meat, especially if that means that I would be supporting an industry that I don't feel is right or correct in the way that it handles and treats the animals. But I'm not going to say to someone else, it's wrong for you to eat meat. I can explain to them why I don't. I can you know, offer them sources to look at some of the facts about how that meat industry operates. But then I still will leave it to them to make their own choice rather than imposing. And I think that's what I was meaning by moving towards obsolescence is the idea of morality being imposed upon uh, rather than it being self-generated. But I did have a question for Mildred in the sense of having the personal morality compass. What do you do about people like, and I know this is a very extreme example, but what do you do about people like Hitler, whose whose own internal moral compass probably, and in his heart, probably believed that what he was trying to do was the right thing? I don't believe that he was following his inner compass, because your inner compass would never give you that message. So I I feel that his actions were based on a belief system that was corrupt. Well, so that, but it does bring up the interesting question of um, we don't live lives of isolation, so we live in society, and society has to create laws, and those laws typically uh, are they coalesce around some kind of common moral code or some kind of common value system, and when people have, let's say, unique or minority desires. Right, they they want to live their lives in ways that are different from from the majority. There's a tension that exists, and whether I guess at the end of the day, everybody's got their own way of looking at the world, and hence their own sense of what makes a good restriction uh, for the benefit of the community, and what and what is an onerous restriction for the community. How do we resolve the fact that we all have different lenses. But John, I don't know when you get down to it that the lenses are all that different. You know, people want to be safe. They would need food. They want to have shelter. They want to be able to raise their children or not have children have that option in a good environment. So what I found is when you start looking at the common denominators that most human beings have, if you go down to the human level, you'd be surprised at how consistent 
and how the same, the same, the same things. People get up in the morning, they eat, they do their work. If you start to tease it apart like that, the big pendulum swings don't exist for the majority of people. Mm. So is there a correlation here between self-gratification, you know, satisfaction of your of one's own desires and what's good for the community? Is there is there tension there for either of you? Do you feel like that's the case? Well, I, I'd like to talk, I'd like to share a little saying that was said by Oscar Wilde. And what he said is morality like art means drawing a line someplace. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think as human beings, as we mature, we all do that. We all have some innate sense. If we choose not to give our power away, if we're if we are empowered, we have an innate sense of where we would draw the, the put the stick in the ground, so to speak. And I really liked what Heisey had to say people being able to do their thing as long as it's not harming or hurting another person. I see. How about you? Uh, well, it, it made me think of something that I had just read recently. Um, and they were talking about Viktor Frankl, who was in Auschwitz. And um, he wrote that a person may remain brave, dignified, and unselfish, or in the bitter fight for self-preservation, he may forget his human dignity and become no more than an animal. And while few tend to be able to do the former, even one such example is sufficient proof that man's inner strength may raise him above his own outward fate. And I think that that speaks to the idea that many times if people haven't been doing their own personal work to understand themselves, Ego will overwhelm the heart. Mm, mm -hmm. And so when ego overwhelms the heart, it means my personal desire or my self-interest is going to overwhelm what might be good for the community. So let's say that there's a sudden food shortage and someone hoards and hides food for themselves in their house and they see their neighbor dying of starvation and they have no food in their house, but they're unwilling to share because they're so afraid of starving themselves that their self-preservation ego kicks in and overwhelms what might be right to say, let me share a little bit of what I have with them. Even though I may have a little less, at least we'll both have a better chance of survival rather than it being me surviving and the other person not. So this puts us in a, you know, let's be let's be honest, you know, we live in a pretty privileged environment where we actually don't have to worry about uh, and are rarely faced with the with the kind of deprivation that would trigger that kind of heart clenching, ego elevating survival instinct. Uh, And yet we seem to do it a lot. We seem to hold out for ourselves instead of being open to or hold out in our ego instead of opening ourselves to what our heart is is motivating us to experience. Why do you think that is? Well, on the one hand, I would say if people haven't been doing the the work for self-awareness, that they don't have that healthy relationship or, or an, a conscious 
uh, evolved relationship with their ego so they understand when it's coming up, what it's wanting, and how to be in best relationship with it and how to operate from that best. And um, I, I also think that there, there's an assumption, you know, there was a study I saw recently that said that some people are missing, I can't remember if it's the brain or a genetic aspect that um, creates a feeling of empathy. Mm, yeah, the empathy gene. If people are missing that, then there may be an actual physiological reason why some people may seem to operate from a different moral basis than others. Because if they lack empathy, they don't have the ability to put themselves in the other person's shoes, to think about the other person in the same way, and therefore don't necessarily feel that sense of wrongness about certain things that other people might because they are so attuned to what it would feel like if I was on the opposite end of whatever it is that I'm doing. Yeah, so this sort of takes us to uh, selfishness and whether selfishness is, you know, what what is the nature of selfishness and whether it's actually a good thing or not, whether it's a, a moral or an immoral thing. Mildred Lynn, do you have a take on selfishness? Well, I wanted to go back to the empathy um, and genetics. So basically, because I think I read that article too, but if someone at the genetic level doesn't seem to have the nuts and bolts for empathy, there is always the opportunity through environment to develop it. Fair enough, right. But that requires the relinquishing of selfishness, doesn't it? So does that does that require us? All right, well, so how do we grapple with selfishness? So I would throw it back to you, John. What is selfishness to you? Well, I, I don't know. This is this is why I'm asking you guys. <laughs> you know, the, there's a, a a for me when I think about satisfying my own desires my perspective and lens is is pretty broad and i think you know we we've mentioned a couple times today the idea of uh doing your personal work and being and, and i think in, when we do our personal work we open up to a broader sense of a broader a broader kind of desire a desire that recognizes the more connected nature of things and, and that it's desirable for me to see others thrive because it feels good and I enjoy it. Uh, and I don't, I mean, I would like to think that uh, the more open and uh, the more internal work we do and the more open we become, the more we would find that kind of desire within ourselves, the, the desire to see others thrive, the, the desire to enjoy a broader perspective and a broader experience of life rather than just uh, sort of a, a, a satisfaction of, of simpler, more selfish, more self-centric desires. But I don't, I don't know because I, I, well, because I'm just me. Um, so I feel like there's we have to recognize that all the desires are part of the human experience and that the more we communicate about the nature of our desires and the more we communicate about what satisfies us and, and the more we share, 
the more likely it is that we'll recognize in one another shared humanity, as Mildred Lynn, you pointed out, and that the this, the real satisfaction can come from community uh, and community satisfaction of desire and, and experience of joy than from uh, selfish or solitary satisfactions. Uh, so that's my hope. Uh, and I think if that's the case, then then there's a good chance that we don't need some external objective moral code for human beings to thrive. That's kind of how it feels to me. Does that, does that resonate with you guys? Well, for me, John, I know if you do your work, then you become more expansive and you naturally become more generous and inclusive. That's been my personal experience and I've noticed it in other areas. For people who haven't done their work, and I'm using that large umbrella, mm-hmm. and when I say work, what I mean is connect with spirit and heart and all that kind of good stuff. But for those who are in a different place on the path, sometimes it's good to have guidelines in place or boundaries. Yeah, fair enough. So everything doesn't turn into chaos. Right. And and what those guidelines are um, might be culturally specific. And that's, in, yes. in effect, what, what religion and culture does is it creates these guidelines for folks who are in the process of doing their work. And But I think the trick, though, John, you have to not give away your power to the guidelines and rules imposed by, let's say, as an example, religions. Like you need to be able to to balance your own inner self with the guidelines without giving your power away. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's my view anyway. That's a powerful point. I see. Do you have, you have a thought about that? Well, going back to when you ask about selfishness, I think that selfishness is when the balance between needs and wants has gotten out of balance and wants has overwhelmed needs. And so if we can keep those in balance, and this is where the, the self-work can really come in, as well as the boundaries, knowing the boundaries, knowing when something is a need and knowing when something is a want and not allowing the wants to always give get precedence, to always get the excuse or justification to be fulfilled, then we can begin to move away from acting in ways that are selfish. Mm, yeah. Great. All right. Well, I really have enjoyed exploring this terrain with you guys. As usual, your insights are thoughtful and edifying. So thanks very much for joining me. Have a great show, John. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. And we'll be back. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable change makers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. 
send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. Up next, I'd like to share with you a realization I had at the beach about desire, ethics, and the hanged man from the Tarot. The hanged man is typically seen to be about sacrifice, sacrificing the self in service to a greater good or to growth. And desire is so often seen as in opposition to ethics. In fact, my conversation with Lincoln Cannon in the Spiritual Transhumanist segment explores the linkage between ethics and desire, and this epiphany further grounds it in reality for me. And then goes one step further, blending yin, yang, and the ego to bring us back around to the Garden of Eden, to conscious innocence, to, I think, the hanged man. It turns out that I want what the universe wants. And there's no point in me choosing or deluding myself into thinking that I could possibly want something else. So, and the reason that the reason that's ludicrous is because I am part of the universe, and therefore, whatever the universe wants, whatever the universe, whatever the driving machinery is of the universe that has put me together in this particular place with this particular ego, has made me such that I want what I want. It imbues me with desire. The universe imbues me with desire by its very nature, by my very nature. And so I can, I can offer no other logic than that what my, the fulfillment of my desires, however they evolve and however they emerge, emerge and evolve, the fulfillment of my desires is what the universe wants. It can be no other way. So my wants are what the universe wants through me. And so I might as well accept that and egoically choose to want that too. Instead of resisting and repelling and judging what I want, as if somehow I knew better than the universe, I should rather examine my desires without judgment and ask what richness comes to the universe through the satisfaction of my desires. And I think this is exactly what leads into and is uh, consonant with Lincoln Cannon's thesis that ethics emerge from desire and a desire based or a desire derived a desire driven ethic is actually the most natural and most wholesome ethic that we can have and it's futile to fight against it because it's what the universe wants anyway so our egos have a choice how will we address ourselves to the universe's desire for us? And we can ask, in, in all legitimacy, whether 
and how much we want to shape it. But then we have to ask why we want to shape it that way. And that comes down to the ego. Why does the ego want what the ego wants? What is, what's, the sh- what's the driving force? What's the driving value system of the ego? And it comes back around to the, to the yin of it all. The driving frame of the ego is derived from experiences with the environment. So it's what the universe wants anyway. So if we could all just chill out, stop judging one another, and start exploring the beauty that exists in in the expression of and fulfillment of our desires, we'd have the Garden of Eden back. That's conscious innocence. That's adult innocence. It's not the innocence of a child. But it contains the innocence of a child, and that is the hanged man. The sacrifice of the hanged man. is the sacrifice of everything his ego has worked for. It all must be put up. Without attachment. Even if huge quantities of resource, vitality, strength have been put to bear on crafting the ego's constructions. And even if letting them go means letting go of relationships that others' egos have invested in and will cause them great pain in the departing. This is not easy work. Welcome everyone to Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella, and with me for another spiritual transhumanist conversation is Lincoln Cannon. And a reminder, Lincoln is a technologist and a philosopher, leading advocate of technological evolution and post-secular religion. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that part, the post-secular religion, over the, the coming segments. For over 10 years, Lincoln has written and presented on topics at the intersection of technology and philosophy, with the emphasis on Mormonism and transhumanism, which is a very interesting combo. Uh, he believes technology always presents both risks and opportunities, and he envisions the ethical use of technology empowering humanity to attain unprecedented global degrees of vitality, intelligence, cooperation, and creativity. Lincoln, welcome back. Happy to be back, John. Thank you. So in our last conversation, we were talking about technology out in the wilderness and the the embrace of that. And there was one thing that you said toward the end of our conversation. You said 
um, people go out into the wilderness and they bring technology with them at some level if they want to survive because nature isn't trying to make you thrive. As if, and, and what I, I took from that was a sense of an adversarial relationship between nature and, and man. And I want to I challenge you a little bit on that as a precursor and intro to the, our subsequent conversation. Do you think nature doesn't desire for humans to thrive? I, I welcome that pushback. And I actually do think that there are very clearly aspects of nature that do want humanity to survive. But of course, the most obvious one is that if you can identify another human who you trust wants you to thrive, and because humans are themselves aspects of nature, clearly nature to some extent wants you to thrive. And then, of course, we can identify other aspects of nature that we might also talk about being um, compatible with human thriving or even intentional towards human thriving. Maybe, maybe a dog um, who is known as man's best friend has some, for, some extent of willful intention for its master's um, well-being, good outcomes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I do think that there are aspects of nature that do want you to thrive as there are aspects of nature that do want to intentionally harm you. Um, I guess my observation was meant in a general sense that I don't think it's appropriate to count on nature on the whole as being about your survival or your thriving, because on the whole, um, nature is way more complicated than that. <laughs> okay. And that I think we can agree upon <laughs> something yeah. that we can, where we can agree. Um, uh, what I want to talk about in more detail today and in, in subsequent uh, segments is you put together a series of blog posts that relate desire to ethics. And uh, in particular, I want to talk about your first post in this regard uh, entitled Desire Entices Us to Embrace Ethics. And I found this particularly interesting uh, because for many of us who are raised in um, the modern Western culture, there is sort of a pushback on desire as almost antithetical to ethics. And I and this this point about nature embracing us and helping us thrive and in some sense desiring us to thrive plays into that a little bit. And I, I wanted to ask you about how you came to this or how you started to ruminate upon this notion that that desire and ethics are not strange bedfellows. Yeah, the beginnings of it, I probably need to uh, credit to my religious upbringing, um, at least to some extent. Because in the Mormon tradition in which I was raised, and which I still practice, um, there is a substantial amount of scripture that talks about the importance of desire, uh, both from the perspective of God and as it should be from the perspective of others, um, in the sense that desire informs um, the kinds of outcomes that God hopes for us as humans um, in Mormon scripture, and that it should also inform the kinds of outcomes that we want for each other, according to Mormon scripture. So I, I, I grew up reading about 
um, the idea of heaven or the idea of God or the idea of salvation or the, um, the idea of how we should serve and treat each other. And those ideas always incorporated the notion of desire and its role in, in what we might call salvation. Wow. And, and so as I tried to understand that at more depth as, and, and as I got older and began studying philosophy and expanding my worldview beyond that which I inherited from a religious education, I found that there, there was good reason to hold on, in my estimation, to, that, to those um, basic concepts of desire-based ethics that I had inherited from my religious tradition. Okay. All right. So um, I want to I poke into your post a little bit here um, because – and some of this might just be philosophical semantics, but I think it's important for people to understand. You wrote, some assert we have no duty for or against any particular value, set of values, or, or even values generally. And you say most don't claim reasons for rejecting duty so much as they claim a lack of reasons for embracing duty. Uh, I, I, can you describe what you mean by duty? Yeah, so duty would be the same as obligation or even the same as morality or ethics. Ethics, morality, obligation, duty, the, those are words that I would loosely use um, in exchange for each other. That's, that's what ethics is about. Is do, we, do I have an obligation? Is there something I should do? When we start using the word should, we're talking about morality, ethics, duty, or obligation. Uh, you, you subsequently wrote, I have observed that the experience of evaluating or feeling of being an evaluator encourages us to adorn ourselves in duty. What do you mean adorn ourselves in duty? Right. So it's this idea that, um, that duty and morality, ethics, is something that is not absolutely objective. It's not something um, insofar as I've ever been able to make sense of it. And there are clearly people who disagree. There are people who are sort of moral absolutists that morality is, is um, kind of independent of subjectivity. Um, but, but insofar as it's ever made sense to me, it's morality has been something that I've understood as arising from human subjectivity and, and it arises from human subjectivity because we want it to, and because we find value and utility in it on one level. And even more so we might find beauty in our moralities and, um, that sort of notion uh, there, there's a long and winding path maybe to get to that sort of notion, but a, but a big contributor to that for me uh, was, the, was reading and studying the works of Nietzsche over a period of time. And Nietzsche talks about um, the creation of morality as being far more powerful than the ability to live according to a morality imposed upon you. And Nietzsche stops short, I think, of of where that conversation should ultimately go. Um, for Nietzsche, the super, the superhuman um, is this ultimate expression of creativity of, of, of values and of morals. And, and I want to press Nietzsche and say, Nietzsche, go one step further with me and, and tell me how is it that a community of childlike creators, a community of superhumanity could coexist Right, because they were mentioned as kind of a, a kind of a self-driven, potentially labelable as narcissistic kind of yeah. character. 
he often receives that sort of criticism. And so I, I'd suggest that he's on the right path. And, and I think some people don't give him credit for where he does actually seem to go further than that. Nietzsche talks about the value of friendship and really emphasizes the value of friendship. So I would say take Nietzsche's notions on friendship and then you, you need to go a little bit further than that too and extend them. But ultimately there is, I believe, I'm persuaded, a sort of morality, a sort of ethics, duty or obligation that we collectively would choose for reasons of a beautiful society, for a society that is congruent with our desires and wills on an individual level and that empowers all of us. Okay, so you cited William James um, and his little thought experience where he says, given a simple universe consisting of a single sentient being, the desires of that being are exhaustive of the values and duty of that universe. Now, I get that given a simple universe consisting of a single sentient being, the desires of that being are exhaustive of the values of that universe. But when you add the words duty, the duty of that universe, what does that mean? How, how can we, how do we, how and why do you conflate values with duty? So in that simple universe, they're conflatable. I would, I would not say that they become so easily conflatable once we add in, in, in complexity, which is the next step in the thought experiment. But in that simple universe, there seems to be no practical way of distinguishing between the two. So if I value X and there are no, con, no other contingencies, there's no other evaluators in the universe, then my duty is X, if there is duty at all. It, okay, so that's the question, right? Is is there duty at all in that universe? Because it's a think, pretty fundamental harmonic. If 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 you say there is or you say there isn't, that can pretty radically, maybe pretty radically, change the the uh, the direction of the argument. So, in, in the spirit of William James, from whom the thought experiment comes, I'd ask. You know, what practical difference does it make for us to distinguish between the two in that simple universe? And the impression I have is that it does not make a practical difference and therefore, you know, doesn't really matter. Um, if the duty, if, if, you, if you identify duty as the morality, well, a duty is, of course, is, is an obligation to act. Is it not? Yeah, duty is obligation, sure. Yeah, it, whether it's a, an obligation of action or an obligation of thought, even. Um, now, that might be hard to follow, obligations of thought, but there, it could be more than action. It could be speech as well. Oh, so, so in this simple universe, there's an obligation to fulfill desire. Well, there's no, yeah, ultimately, really, we could say that there's no practical distinction between duty and values in the simple universe. The meaningful kind of duty arises when we extend the thought experiment from one subject being, one subjectivity, one person or willful entity, however you want to describe it, to a second. And as soon as we introduce that second person, then we start having a meaningful discussion of duty. And of course, in a universe like ours where there are innumerable willful entities and subject beings with conflicting and desires of all kinds and various tensions between them, then of course duty becomes even more complex accordingly. 
And so, so I, I'm still wrestling with this, with, with duty versus uh, fulfillment of desire. The sense that we have an obligation. I mean, I, I, so, so one thing that I really like about what you're saying is that we might want to create morality because it will, because it'll be beautiful, right? Because it enhances the beauty of our experience. Uh, but are we sure that's the case? It may be for that. And the implication of duty or the implication of obligation, uh, I just, can I, can we probe on that a little bit? Do we really have an obligation? Is there such a thing as duty that is, that is, um, a priori axiomatically necessary? So ultimately I don't think that you can provide a proof against the skeptic, you know, the, the, uh, the skeptic of meaning, the, the perfect skeptic, the, the nihilist, you, you can't give that person a logical argument that says you're wrong. There, there's, a, there's no logical refutation of, of nihilism. So um, no, I guess to answer your question, no, we can't just say axiomatically there is duty. But the point of this train of thought is to persuade the nihilist in each of us to embrace our desires as duty in a certain sense. And of course that becomes more complex as we start talking about reconciliation of desires being an important aspect of this. Okay. But so at the, at the very beginning, the invitation to the nihilist is not, you have a logical obligation. The invitation to the nihilist is you want what you want, make that your duty. And so the initial invitation is very egotistical. But the train of thought that follows consequent to that by leveraging these internal desires that the, that the nihilist in each of us already has, right. generally, in my experience, but not necessarily in every case, generally leads the person to recognize, oh, so if I start attributing the importance of obligation to my desires, which is an enticing thing to do, then rationality starts to show me that I maybe should be doing that for this other person too. Well, okay, so let's let's hold off on uh, on that because because I, uh, that's a fruitful vein of ore to mine. Uh, but it really the thing that I w- wanted to be comforted by is something that you said is that um, the it's an invitation to view desire, the fulfillment of desire as duty. That's right, and so it's not it's not an obligatory, um, rational injection of structure. You're no. not saying, oh, well, if, of course you have to. Uh, it, no, it's, 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 it's pre-rational and it's pre-obligation. It's pre-moral. There's, no, in fact, I would argue that morality itself, in a, in a way that is meaningful, is not even possible without that initial invitation. See, that's cool. That's cool. Tell me why you say that. Um, well, again, going back to the strong skeptic, the nihilist, the person who does not um, feel any obligation to attribute morality anywhere and maybe not even to associate meaning in some ways that you and I would feel comfortable attributing meaning in an objective sense. They just would say, no, that, that's not even meaningful. There's, there's, I have no obligations. You know? there's, 
the right. possibility of extreme skepticism is out there. Most of us aren't that skeptical, but it's out there. There's not a logical proof against it. Um, you know, you've got the Cartesian demon who can be relied upon to save the skeptic from anything they don't want to consent to, right? (laughs) You're a figment of my imagination, everything around me, and in fact, I can change it all right now by overdosing on morphine, and you'll all disappear. And that's just what I said. Anyway, um, (laughs) whatever train of thought you want to use. So the initial initial impulse toward morality um, needs to be something outside of morality for the person who doesn't want to accept it. It's not very persuasive to say, be moral because be moral. That's right. Exactly. You have to look at something else. And and a lot of people will choose to go towards logical argumentation and rationality and say, logical argumentation and rationality can prove that you need to be moral. I don't know of a persuasive argument for that. I know that there's lots of people who have suggested some, and we could look at them individually, and I would point out to you where I think they're weak and fail for various reasons. So those worked for me. Um, And so what you're left with in my estimation, and, and it's not left with a small thing. I think this is a wonderfully huge thing that you're left with. And that is an appeal to that person's desires. And and I think it's, I think it's very, it's very reasonable uh, in the sense that if you wind everything back to a pre-rational human state, the proto-human, and for that matter, any form of life on the planet, the fulfillment of desire is essential to the expression of that life form. At At a, at a, you know, let's starting at the very coarsest level if you desire to breathe and don't you won't be expressing much of yourself in the world right right? so so if we're here for any reason at all right we have an obligation to sustain ourselves in some measure so that we can do whatever it is we're here to do we might even say if we're not here for any reason at all even if we're not you and I individually might still have in ourselves a reason or minimally maybe, maybe the capacity to posit a reason. Yes, to create a reason. <laughs> right. So, so I think that the, the emergence of the philosophical train of thought is well grounded in, and this is what I really wanted to get to, is it's well grounded in the idea that the addressing oneself to the fulfillment of desire at a very preliminary pre-rational place of origin is actually sound logic. It's persuasive, at least, right? Ultimately, I think it becomes logic. I agree. But even before it's sound logic... It's, it's like that thing on which logic even depends, right? It's like saying, I want to be logical, so I'm going to start out by doing the things that are necessary for me to even be logical. And one of those things, for example, would be non-contradiction. I'm just going to have to assume non-contradiction, or I can't even start being logical. Well, okay, so you're, you're um, giving an example of an intellectual precursor. I'm actually talking about a biological precursor. Like, yes. in order for me to be logical, 
I have to be functional. Yes. I have to be able to eat. I have to be able to sustain the body that houses the brain, that manipulates the consciousness that wants to be logical or that, that posits the possibility of being logical. So, so those desires, those, those very uh, profane, simple desires are, in a sense, a great place to start in terms of yeah. obligation, right? Of, of duty, right? Yeah. Otherwise, there is no... We can't go down a path of meaning if we don't assert that being on the path is worth something. Yeah, and that we're on it and that we started it. You know, I'm starting with something that's worth having. Right, right. And, and, and that is myself. That's right. As a, as, a, as a functioning consciousness in a body. And some people will, will push back and say, but that's so egotistical. And my immediate response would be, well, anything else just doesn't work. You've got to start because by saying it's egotistical, you are egotistically being the evaluator of egotism at that point. You are evaluating egotism. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that I'm going to delight in sharing with our audience is how you develop this, uh, this philosophy of ethics uh, emerging from desire in a way that turns out to not be, not be egotistical and not be self-centered and not be absurdly amoral or immoral or degenerative or anything. It's actually, it's actually edifying in a lot of ways that folks who at first might say, well, how could you possibly create a morality based on hedonism you know that that could withstand any kind of scrutiny and i think uh, what i what i like is i think you have done a great job of setting the stage for that thank you i look forward to sharing more about it yeah so um uh, what what are we going to talk about next the the next one in this series is what joy is the purpose of life joy is the purpose of life so so starting with uh where we've started from today that uh desire that ethics emerge from uh, from desire from a proper lensing of desire the next thing we're going to talk about is the implications of the statement that joy is the purpose of life and that'll be another great conversation looking forward to it so that's all uh, that's all the time we have today uh but again lincoln for folks that want to get to know you and your work a little bit better where should we direct them Easiest way to find me is to Google my name, Lincoln Cannon, C-A-N-N-O-N, in the last name, the first name, just like the president of, former president of the United States. And the uh, first search result will be my blog, lincoln.metacannon.net. All right, great. All right, and we'll be talking again soon. Thanks, Lincoln. Thanks. You're listening to Convergence with host John Carousella on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. Okay, so I want to talk with you about original sin. Yep. That thing everybody who's read the Bible or gone to Christian Sunday school has at some point come across. Now, I suspect what you're saying is, come on, John, it's 2016. Who believes in original sin anymore? It's a ridiculous concept. Right? Right? Admit it. You don't believe that that Bible story 
and the way we've interpreted it has any relevance. Old school, fire and brimstone, guilt me into obedience style religiosity. Well, I have to say, that's what I thought too. But indulge me. I stumbled across a way of relating to that story that's, well, a little different and a lot more satisfying. So, so let's go to the story. Adam, Eve, and God are hanging out in the Garden of Eden, a paradise of sensate experience. Lots of things happening there. Life, really, in all its fascinating complexity and interrelatedness. And God and Adam and Eve are all quite happy. And so God says to them, Hey, if you like living here, I'd be delighted for you to stay. Just one condition. See that tree over there? Don't eat the fruit from that tree. If you eat that fruit, you'll, uh, you'll die. So time passes, and Eve encounters the serpent. And the serpent, as the story goes, is the most clever of the creatures. And the serpent says, Hey, Eve, are you really forbidden from eating fruit from the trees in here? And she says, No, we can eat anything except from that tree over there. God says, We'll die if we eat it. And the serpent says, No, you won't die. God just doesn't want you to eat it because then you'll be like him. And Eve saw the fruit saw that it looked tasty, and took a bite, and gave some to Adam. Okay, so what just happened? From the story, Eve took a bite of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge of good and evil. That's important. We're going to parse that in some detail. Okay, so as I like to do, let's assume this story is true somehow. And let's figure out how it could make sense. Before Eve took a bite, she did not have knowledge of good and evil. And after she took a bite, she did. So let's go back in time, as far back as we have to, to the time of proto-humans. Let's look at this moment that the story is pointing us to. At some point, far enough back, we didn't have the knowledge of good and evil. And then at some point, we did. While we didn't have this knowledge, what did we have? Well, we certainly had experience. We had the experience of hot and cold, hungry and sated, wet and dry, injured and healthy, pleasure and pain. We had all these experiences. We even had experiences of life and death. But interestingly, we did not have the knowledge of good and evil. So what were these experiences then, in contrast? Well, they were just that, experiences, contrasting experiences. Some we enjoyed, some we didn't. Some we maybe had explanations for, maybe even shared through some form of language, and some we didn't but we didn't assess them as good or evil. We assessed them, if we assessed them at all, as positive and negative, as desirable or undesirable. But we didn't... what? We didn't judge them. And this, I submit, is what happened after Eve 
took the bite. Into the proto-human consciousness emerged judgment. Or, perhaps more likely, an emergent property of human cognition is judgment. So, what is judgment? It's not just desirable, undesirable. It's actually quite a leap in sophistication. As I've explored it, it's the capacity, the intellectual cognitive capacity to experience something and then model it in the mind, analyze it in the mind, and construct a perspective, a perspective on reality that in the mind makes it good or evil. And here's the big deal. It's all happening. All that is happening in the mind. We now have a capacity to create a story in our heads, separate from our sensate reality, that some experiences are good and some are not, even though our sensate experience would and could tell us otherwise. So, for example, we have the ability to take something pleasurable, sex as an obvious example, and make it not good. Now, regardless of how you feel about that example, the point is important. Once Eve took that bite, humans had the ability to divorce their assessment of things from their sensate experience. And we've been paying the price ever since. Why? Because before we did that, we took everything at face value. We didn't have the capacity to judge in the abstract whether something was good or evil. We just experienced it and chose to avoid those things which created discomfort for us. We didn't presume that death, for example, was bad. It was just something that happened. Maybe we didn't want it to happen, just like we didn't want to starve or be cold or get sick, but like wild animals, perhaps, we just experienced it. It reminds me of the line from a D.H. Lawrence poem. I never saw a wild thing, sorry for itself. We couldn't feel sorry for ourselves because we didn't judge our experiences as fundamentally good or evil. We just experienced it. We liked it or we didn't. We celebrated it or we didn't. But it wasn't evil. It just was. And that, of course, was a long time ago. And it was at that point we answered what I call the map, the model of reality, as distinct from what I call the terrain, the lived experience of reality. Now, I'm not suggesting that developing that kind of abstract valuing process with judging was a total loss. Clearly, our ability to model and predict has been adaptively a huge advantage. It's enabled humans to do things that are uniquely human on a scale that is uniquely human, but it does come at a cost. Judgment, it seems to me, is absolutely and unequivocally a process with an indelible, uneradicable bug. To judge is to step away from the truth. Now, I'm not saying that to predict is to step away from the truth. We can use our discernment to gather data and learn and predict that fire is hot and ice is cold. But that's not judging the fire as good or evil. Discernment is quite compatible with lived, sensate experience. 
Prediction takes us a slight step away from lived experience, but it's not the same consequential divide as judgment. Because when we judge something to be good or evil, we're drawing a pretty profound conclusion. There's an old Chinese parable about a man, his son, and a runaway stallion, in which the moral of the story is the implacable Chinaman's refrain, good news, bad news, who knows, which reflects the changing perception of fortune as more data is made available. As events unfold, experience reveals itself, and consequences are measured. The news goes from bad to good to bad and back again and again and again. When we judge, we do two things. First, we step away from the data stream. And second, we take the place of God. Now, first, I suggest that God would never do such a thing. God would never step away from the data stream. In many cases, folks would argue that God already has all the data, or is at the very least inseparable from all the data. So, maybe God has enough data to make the call, good or evil. We certainly don't. Now, if you do have access to all the data, all the downstream events, all the consequences, all the ramifications, in short, if you know the end of the story, and all the parts in the middle, you might, and I emphasize, you might, be able to ascertain whether something was good or evil in some absolute sense. But then, at that point, it's all a matter of one's aesthetic. Okay, so second, if you're not God, if you're not the owner of the paint and the canvas and the wielder of the brush, then really... Isn't it kind of presumptuous to critique the painting, especially when it's not finished? I mean, if you're not God, who are you to criticize the creation and the way it unfolds? Especially when we know, we know that the more data we have, the more experience we have, the more perspective we have, we're likely to have a different understanding. So when we stand in judgment, we have chosen to separate ourselves from the truth. Capital T, truth, because we've stepped away from the data stream. Of course, because we can't have all the data. We're limited in time and capacities. That's why we model in our heads, because it's a proxy for the real-time data, which, to be fair, would require more years and more attention to detail than we're currently equipped to experience. And I'm not saying that somehow we should never judge. That's a foolish proposition because, frankly, it's too late. Eve ate the fruit. Judgment, the capacity to judge, to suspect that there is something we might categorize as good and something else we might categorize as evil, seems to be an emergent property of human sentience. We all have it. We can't escape it. That's why it's called original sin. It's the one you're born with because you're human. It's the age-old conundrum. Is it a bug or a feature? Okay, that conundrum is not nearly as age-old as the current topic, but what, whatever it is, we're stuck with it. And I'd like to take it one step further. Later that same day, God comes down to the garden 
whistling away as he enjoys its emergent, blossoming beauty and fertility. And he's meandering around, and after a while he notices something funny. He can't find Adam or Eve anywhere. Finally, he calls to them, Adam, Eve, where the heck are you guys? Sheepishly, Adam pulls back a branch and says, Uh, we were hiding. Why were you hiding? Uh, because we were naked and we were ashamed. Who told you you were naked? Uh, Eve, this, she talked to the snake, the, uh, the fruit. Okay, so what's happening here? In the grand allegorical story, here we're seeing something very profound. Humans separate themselves from God. Humans separate themselves. They separate themselves from God. Why? Self-judgment. The very first consequence of judgment, the very first sin, the first separation from God, is self-judgment and shame. Self-judgment and shame. It's not that they're naked. It's that they judge themselves and place shame upon themselves. Think about it. Without judgment, there can be no shaming. So, original sin. Not so anachronistic as I once thought. Maybe this exploration has been useful for you too. Another time, I'll fill in the blanks on what to do about judgment, how we might navigate a world in which judgment is always present and too often used, and how we can limit its damage. We've obviously achieved impressive, godlike things by treating it as a feature. Perhaps it's time to focus on mitigating its buggy, unintended consequences. And oh, that serpent? What did he say? You certainly will not die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like the gods, knowing both good and evil. And do you think the serpent was insinuating that God was holding out on us? I don't. I think maybe the serpent was trying to say, be careful what you wish for. We'll be right back. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi C at tarotbyhic.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. May, what a beautiful time to embrace the beauty of the creation. It's a great time to embrace the beauty of your own reflection, too. To do that, try dropping judgment, self-judgment in particular. See what happens. I've found huge reservoirs of strength and vitality hiding 
well, stuck really, behind that curtain. I'd love to know what you find there. And another benefit? You'll be happier, and those around you will notice. What a great gift to give to the world. A beautiful gift. So, thanks for joining me. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lisney. Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m.